<laughs> right. Wow, it's lovely to be here. Um, so yes, my name is Yitzende, and we've done such a wonderful thing this morning. And actually, it just reminds me of what we're going to talk about today. Um, yeah, so God's good, God's amazing. The songs we've been singing this morning, he fights and battles. You know, God is the line of Judah, he's amongst us. God is amazing. God is great. All these things have been happening over the stories we read in the Bible. And we've been looking at the Bible for all, um, we're looking through the Bible in the space of a year. Um, starting from Genesis, we talk about um, the, big, the great fall, you know, in the Garden of Eden. From Abraham to Joseph, you know, going into slavery in Egypt. And all of that stories, you know, how God amazingly brought the children of Israel out of um, Egypt from slavery. All those plagues and the miracles and the great things that God did. Do you know that God is still the same God today? He has not changed one bit. And when we think about the Bible, I used to read the Bible and think, oh, you know, uh, um, I'm, I'm bored really. And then you look at the genealogy and all of that. And, and I used to just think, I'm, I'm all right, sorry, I'm all right just with the worship, with coming to church, and that's fine. But then the more I engaged with the Bible, wow, it's like a maze, really, in a way. The more you engage with it, the more it opens up to you. The more you engage with it, the more it opens up to you. It might look as if there's a struggle initially, but keep at it, and God will come through for you. I was listening to something on Radio 4, um, and in, in the mornings, they talk about religion. And there's this guy from Cambridge, maybe a professor, you know, and was talking about reading the Bible, his own experience. And, and he said the same thing that I've just said, that, you know, when you read the Bible initially, it looks as if, oh, you know, perhaps it's boring and this, but just keep at it. Keep reading it. Don't give up. Keep reading the Bible and it would open to you. So we've read about um, all the different stories from Genesis, you know, to to um, Joseph, they're coming back from um, Egypt. And then we hear about the great names like Joshua, um, Caleb, and how God used them to fight the battles. We talked about fighting battles today. To fight the battles to actually be, um, for them to be able to get into the promised land that God had promised to his children. Um, so we look at all of that. So, um, then we look at Chronicles, which is, um, well, um, not just, sorry, before we get to Chronicles, we look at Judges, we look at Kings, First Kings, Samuel. I'm not saying it's in order, sorry. <laughs> sorry, you have to read the Bible to get the order for yourself. And so I have been so blessed listening to all that. So we, last week, who remembers what we did last week? I wasn't here last week, but I know what we did. So we looked at Chronicles, and then there was emphasis on the building of the temple. We know that um, David, who was the king, described as the man of God, the man after God's own heart, wanted to build a temple for God. He was such a man of worship. He wanted to build a temple for God, but God said to him, look, your, your son Solomon is going to build that temple. And Solomon ended up building this magnificent temple, this amazing temple that, you know, was so great that at the dedication of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant was put in there. 
and there was so much worship and the glory of God came down so mightily, so much more that even the priests, we're told, could not stand to minister when the glory of God came down. You know, as we've been worshiping this morning, as we worship in our own personal lives, we engage with the presence of God. You know, when we worship God wholeheartedly and we come to him, committed, God comes down, God definitely shows his glory. We might not necessarily see it as in a cloud, as it was seen in those days, but we can know that actually something is different when we worship God. The presence of God comes down and he manifests himself through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So that brings us to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah which we're going to um, um, look at today. But before we do that, we're going to watch the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Video. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. 
And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking, this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. 
Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up. He's pulling out their hair and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange, but we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Thank you. Okay, Ezra and Nehemiah in a nutshell. You can imagine I'm trying to compress all of that into half an hour. There's so much in that. You need to read it yourself. There's so many different factions. But the theme of the story is the fact that um, um, there's restoration, building. The, the photos there, you'd see on one side, there's a city in ruins. And on the other side, um, there's a built-up city. So it's a story about them being able to move from that deplorable situation into a city that is built up. <clears throat> by God. Okay. Um, just to sort of go back a bit over the um, of two books. So the precursor to actually the book of um, um, Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah is a prophet who prophesied about the children of Israel actually going back um, to their land. So the precursor to that really was the fact that um, about 150 years before that, um, the, a number of prophets have been prophesied. So we have the likes of Haggai, um, Haggai, um, Zechariah, and Jeremiah, who had prophesied to the children of Israel and told them to um, turn from their evil ways. Before this time, we read in the kings of how successive kings of Israel, um, with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, how they actually led Israel to sin. We remember, I don't know if we um, remember, there's somebody called um, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was one of the kings of Israel, and he did a terrible thing, you know, um, in his own time, he created a separate temple to the temple of Solomon, and he um, dedicated to the temple to Baal, so he caused the children of Israel to actually to start to worship Baal rather than go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. So there had been a lot of things um, going on in, this, um, amongst the in the life of the Israelites. 
they had actually completely broken down in terms of um, the spirituality. They were worshipping, you know, different gods. Remember, um, in Kings, we talked about um, Elijah and Elisha, the prophets of Baal. Do we remember that story? Yeah, how the, um, you, know, you know, the prophets of Baal, 400 of them were killed in one day and God brought fire down from heaven to, you know, demonstrate that God is still God. We see that in our world today, you know, we... The story is very reminiscent of what's happening around us today. You only need to listen to the news, don't you? And hear about the different things, the wars, um, different nations, one nation taking over another nation, um, so much materialism, you know, so much idolatry in the sense of people replace God in their lives with different things, you know, either with money, with fame, with all kinds of culture. So it reminds us today that God is still wanting to walk in our own world and his theme, his main Purpose is restoration. So, um, so after all these prophecies um, that had come, and the Israelites did not turn from the evil ways. The key prophecy you can read about that in Jeremiah um, 29 um, to 33 was that they were going to be taken captive by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar for uh, about 70 years. So they will be in exile. They will be in captivity for 70 years. But if they changed their minds, if they turned around and began to begin to worship God, God would bring them back into their own city, um, into the promised land, and he would settle them, prosper them, um, and have um, continue his relationship with them. God wants always to have a relationship with his people. Okay, so the Babylonians under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem in five... <coughs> 87 BC, they killed the leaders of Judah, plundered the temple before burning it to the ground. They destroyed much of the city, including the walls, and took the cream of Jerusalem's crop of citizens to Babylon. These include the likes of Daniel and his colleagues, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, possibly Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and Ezra and Nehemiah. They multiplied and increased the population while in captivity, although there was still a remnant left um, in Judah. When we read Psalm 137, it says, um, by the rivers of Babylon, you know, um, what does it say actually? Let me find it. <laughs> if you know the song, you remember. <laughs> by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down there, we wept. By the, uh, by the um, where we remembered Zion, amen. Thank you, wow, you're amazing, <laughs> you're Bible scholars. So it, having that scenario in your mind, you can imagine how it was like for those in captivity. They would call them and say, oh, come and sing the Lord's song to us. And they would weep and cry and think, how can we sing the Lord's song in Babylon, you know, in captivity? This is what they went through. So they were oppressed under the Persian kings, under the Babylonian um, kings. So, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the backdrop against where the two books were written. They cover a period of about... Um, a hundred years in history, um, and at the end of that time, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was defeated by the Persian king called Cyrus. Again, there was a prophecy about Cyrus in Isaiah, and talked about Cyrus being used of God to rebuild um, the city of Jerusalem. Um, again, this is around, um, so it covers between 538 BC to for, um, 24 BC. We're not quite sure who the author of um, um, Ezra and Nehemiah is, but we 
can see that you know, whoever compiled the book had used the memoirs, or what can be described as the memoirs of Ezra and um, Nehemiah. So Ezra opens in chapter one. Um, with, I'm going to sort of go through this very quickly, and then we're going to read some passage actually at the end of it. Israel opens with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Pashia. God stares his heart and he orders um, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And he says, you know, he, he makes this decree and says, anyone who is a, um, a, um, anyone who actually loves God, all the people of God who are willing to go back to Jerusalem should go back and build the temple. So, and he provides um, silver, gold, every provision that they need to go back and um, build the temple. And then we, we hear somebody called Zerubbabel. Again, Zerubbabel is somebody who had been prophesied about um, previously in, in Jeremiah. So we hear about Zerubbabel in chapter 3. And Zerubbabel, along with some of his um, king's men called um, Jeshua, come together and lead a group of retinees, those who had been in captivity, and they went back to Jerusalem and began to build. Well, we hear, we, they got there, they dedicated, you know, they prayed, they came together, but they didn't quite start the work of the building for some time. We don't know why. Um, anyway, so after a while, when they began to, when they began the breeding project, a few things happened. We realized that apparently there were people in the local area and in the government of the Pasha and um, uh, Medio Pashian kingdom actually did not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. They preferred Jerusalem to be in ruins and the Israelite, um, Jewish people to be oppressed. Do we see that today in, the, in our days where all things Christian seem to be put down? You know, um, there isn't any celebration of anything God. Everything is anti-Christ in a way. If you're talking about your religion or perhaps, you know, talking about who you are as Christ. Actually, in the in the nominal world, you know, there's um, a lot of effort to try and restrict who we are in our faith as Christians. And it appeared to be the same with the Jewish people. There are a lot of adversaries around them who preferred for them to be in, um, the city to be in ruins. They were not happy for the rebuilding of, um, of Jerusalem. So after a number of going back and forth letters, adversary writing to the kings and saying, look, these people cannot build their, their temple, you know, and blah, 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 a lot of that going on back and forth, the building work stopped. But something happened as well. There are a few prophets who were there amongst them. We had Zechariah, we had um, Haggai, and they continued to prophesy. They continued to actually prophesy over the children of Israel to remind them of God's promises over their lives. And after a while, that, they plucked up courage. Zerubbabel again plucked up courage, and then they started to um, build the temple. Anyway, so back and forth, another set of opposition came, and the building stopped. A number of, after about three kings down, further down the line, the building started, and they completed the, build, um, the temple, and that was dedicated. However, as it was said on the video to us, <clears throat> on the day of the dedication of the building, of the temple, and there was a lot of joy, there was a lot of worship and all of that, but there were some people amongst them who had seen the temple that Solomon had built. And they wept so seriously, they wept bitterly because they realized that the temple, that the new temple that had just been rebuilt was nothing compared to the temple that Solomon had built. The glory was so far much more diminished than what they had experienced in the time of, um, <coughs> of Solomon. Right, okay, so 
that's some kind of overview. Please let's go back and read the book of Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. There's so much there that we can pick up. So for our text today, um, I'm going to take us to um, Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's, let's open up to Nehemiah um, chapter 2. Wow, I'm really have to going to speed this up very quickly. Um, so they may have to um, verse nine, I think. So then, then I, this is Nehemiah speaking here. Then I, then I came to the um, governors of the province beyond the river and gave the king's letters. Now the king had given him letters um, to go to um, Jerusalem and to give letters to the people in the, the governors around the province so they could allow him passage so he can build the walls of Jerusalem. Um, now the king had sent me with officials of my army and horsemen. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, the Ammonite servant had this, it, deple- it displeased them greatly that someone had come back to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Right, okay. So let's jump to, um, so, so that's chapter two. Jeremiah comes back and starts to rebuild um, the walls of Jerusalem. In chapter three, we look at the um, detail of who was building what. He came back with a group of um, returnees from exile and they started to build. And if you look at chapter three, it, it gives details of each family, how they built um, parts of the wall and, and so on and so forth. And there was actually um, somewhere in verse 11 there that talked about um, a man who had just daughters, you know, and all his daughters came with him to build their own section of the wall. In other words, you know, again, just talking about mothers, you know, Women are so important in the work of God. Wherever we find ourselves, we must build. We must stand up. We must be count, stand up to be counted because God has a work for us and he's counting on us to um, do the work of restoring his people back to himself. So <clears throat> let's go to chapter four. Right, chapter four, one to three. That now, now when some lads heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and bond, and bond, ones, and bond ones of that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, that, yes, what are they building? Either fox goes up or needs, he will break down the stone wall. This is the kind of ridicule that the, that the children of Israel had in the face of them trying to rebuild their city. Okay, so we um, jump from that, we go to um, <clears throat> six. We go to verse six and read to the end. So we build the wall, and the wall was joined together um, to have its height. For the people had a mind to walk. Let's know that. The people had a mind to walk. But when Sabalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites had that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and, <clears throat> and set a guard 
as a protection against them day and night. The, and it, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And, one, and our enemies said, they will, not, they will not know or see till we are coming, and then they will kill them and stop the work. See, there's so much opposition. The more they were trying to walk, the more the adversaries were plotting, were doing all kinds of things to stop them from rebuilding Jerusalem. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came in all directions and said um, to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest part of the um, space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people, um, and people by the clans with their swords and their spears and the bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great among, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When the enemies, so um, I need sort of okay. I'll please read that on your own. It's good to read the rest of that on your own. Well, um, basically, you know, it talked about how they now kind of um, strategized. Um, in terms of building the wall. Let me read... Um, okay, so have this scenario in your heart. They're building this wall. The wall is great and massive. And they're spread all over the place. And they said to themselves, okay, we are building this wall, but we're too, much spread, of, um, we're too spread apart. The enemies can come and... and um, and fight us because we're too, there's so much distance between us. So they said, okay, well, we're going to have somebody who's going to blow the trumpet. When this, if there's any sign of the enemy coming, we're going to blow the trumpet and they will come together and they would fight, will fight for, for us. Actually, the reason I'm trying to, I'm going into all of this detail is trying to bring this down to our own world. You know, today we've prayed for those who are going to within show. You know, whether we, we meet in Harblickley, we meet here in the morning, we meet in the evenings, you know, we're meeting in all different places. We come together um, as the people of God to pray. And that's the weapon of our warfare. The Bible says it's not cannibal, it's mighty true God to the pulling down of strongholds. We are fighting a battle. What's the battle we're fighting? We are fighting a battle as agents of restoration. God has called us to restore to himself people, the whole world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life, you know. And the people we work with, the people in our schools, the people wherever we go, God has died for all these people. God loves them. I might not, you know, get along with them, you know, with some of the people I work with. I might not, please, by the way, in court, I met <laughs> in the work setting. You might not get along with who you, um, people you work with. You might not get along with, you know, people in um, your kids' school or whatever. But the important thing is to know that God died for the world. He died for humanity. He wants to restore everybody to himself. So that is the work we're working, we're, we're called to do. We're called to be agents of restoration. Wherever we are, God wants to use us to restore people back to himself. So just like Nehemiah and Ezra and his colleagues were building the world, they were building something, they were, build, they were restoring who God, the identity of, of God in the lives of the Jewish people. They were restoring the, spiritually that was, the spirituality that had been lost back into the lives of the Jewish people. They were restoring you know, freedom. You know, the freedom that we have, that was, it is not, it's for freedom that we have been set free no longer to be captive to a slave and to the yoke of slavery. You know, God has set us free. In our freedom, we have to fight to maintain that. 
You know, we have to, Bible says, you know, that we should cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts his name against the knowledge of Christ and bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Anything that is going to stop us from realizing the fullness of what God has achieved for us, we must fight to make sure that doesn't happen. So in our days, we're fighting. We're fighting a battle. We're building. And we're saying, God, whatever you've done and accomplished for us, we're not going to rest until we've seen the reality of it in our own lives. This is what Ezra and Nehemiah were doing. Right, okay, so, um, so we read on um, in these chapters, but very quickly, um, there was a, so they, they said they were going to sound the trumpet to come together. What is the trumpet we sound? What is the sound of our own trumpet? What does it sound like in our world today? It sounds like, you know, meeting together in higher blick. It sounds like meeting together here in the AM, AM service. It sounds like meeting together in the home service in the evening. It sounds like going to our connect groups. It sounds like going to the prayer meeting. That's the sound of our own trumpet. <clears throat> Amen. This is where we come together and watch and encourage and, you know, and secure ourselves and remind ourselves of who we are so that when we go out into the workplace, you know, sometimes you might think, oh, well, actually, I'm the only Christian in my workplace. I'm the, you know, I'm the only person who actually knows Christ here. But we're spread apart, we're wide, we're all over the place. But God calls us together when we hear the trumpet, like we're coming together today to worship. And when worship meets the presence of God, his glory comes down. Amen. Amen. Um, all right, okay, so very quickly. Anyway, so they built, so when the Bible says they had the mind to walk. And when they started to build, and in 52 days, Remember the um, to, um, Samalat and Tobiah, the Horonites, and said, look, these guy, guys are feeble. You know, even if a fox went off the, 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 the wall, it, it would be broken, you know. But because they had the mind to walk and they had the strategy to fight, to use the resources and to remember that God was in their midst. We sang today that the Lion of Judah is now midst. He's fighting our battles. It's not about us fighting the battles. It's about him fighting the battles. It's about us agreeing with who he is and allow him to walk through us. And you know, God, the, the walls were built in 52 days. You know, and I, I won't go back to read that. And, and it says somewhere that when these adversaries heard that they had built the wall, they were very afraid. They were so afraid, and then they realized something. They realized it wasn't them who built it by themselves. It was God who built it for them. Don't forget that these guys had had the fame of these people. They knew how they were brought out of Israel, but they wanted to keep them on the suppression. Today we know about, we know that God is at work. God is at work in us. God is at work in us. He wants us to, you know, to to restore men and women to him. We know we have had the great testimonies in, in, in years past of how revivals have happened. You know, in, in, here in England, you know, we have the Welsh revivals, you know, the Scottish revivals. God is still wanting to do revival in our day today. But he's depending on you and me. He's depending on you and me to agree with him, to have a mind to work. So very quickly, <clears throat> verse 19, you know, they, we talked about the sound of, of, um, of the trumpet and how, what it means for us um, today. Again, coming back to the theme of the book, a theme of restoration. And I'll read this in 2 Corinthians 5, um, 14 to 17. It says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all those who live, so, and, he, and, and he died so that all those who live should no longer live for themselves, but, to, but for him who died, for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. 
a new, the new creature has come, the old one has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us 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 the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So wherever we go, remember that person who you don't like, who perhaps looked at you in a way. God died for him. God wants to reconcile him to, to you. Remember that child in your class who is so wayward or whatever, and you think, oh, this child, I wish I'm not the teacher of this person. God loves that child. He wants to reconcile that child to himself. You know, God wants to reconcile the world to himself through us. So we say, we are therefore Christ ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, he is making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had, been no, who had, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, or we might become the righteousness of God. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell would not, prevail against, would not prevail against it. So very quickly, there are a few things that is notable in the lives of Nehemiah, Ezra, you know, um, Daniel, who was a precursor to all of this because he prayed um, about this um, prophecy in order for the children of Israel to be returned back to, to their land. You know, God, we know God is at work. God used a heathen king. Cyrus was a heathen king. He did not know God, but God used him to, you know, further his purpose. So even when, in the times that we live, you, you think, okay, all these people in government, are they able to do God's will? Do you know they're able to do God's will if we pray? And we say, Lord, we need you to touch the lives of all these people so that your will can be done. It depends on how we hold on to God and ask him to move um, in our affairs. We sang today, God is a God who operates in the affairs of his people. Even today, God is still at work. So we need to, um, God is at work. So, uh, <clears throat> Proverbs um, 21 one says, the king's heart is like the streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. We can trust God regardless of the government of the day to fulfill his covenant. Um, God seeks a heart for himself. Second Chronicles says, for the eyes of the Lord runs to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. God is looking for a heart, like we saw in the video. It's about a heart. Are we committed wholeheartedly to God? When it comes to that point of wholehearted commitment to God, God is ready to move on our behalf. Amen. God will move where there's a desire for us and a longing to fulfill God's covenant. We're covenant people. God wants to fulfill his promise of covenant continually before us. One important thing about these key people was that there was great sacrifice. Nehemiah, Ezra, you know, these guys were great, rank, great um, high-ranking officials in the hidden nations, in the Babylonian and Persian kingdoms. They, you know, they probably lived in mansions and lived, you know, wealthy lives, but they were prepared to leave all of that and go back and build Jerusalem. God is calling us, whatever God has blessed you with, God says, you know, if you have left all of this, I will bless you much more than that, even in this life. You cannot give, sacrifice something for God and he will not pay you back so much more than you, can ever could have, than you could ever have imagined. Anyway, so I'm going to close with that because I know time is far gone. You know, God is calling us to be our Ezra's today, to be the Nehemiah's today as we go to different, you know, areas of worship, areas of work, you know, whether we are trumpets, it's um, for us to gather in, in, um, in AM um, site or in higher Blakely or in within shore or in home site. God is wanting to restore his people back to himself. You and I are his agents of transformation. Even though the world might think we are feeble, God is the strength of our lives. Amen. Amen. Amen.